been a couple months since I preached last, but if you can search your memories all the way back to the end of June, if you were here, you may recall that I preached on the first six verses of the Old Testament book of Zechariah as the first of a nine or 10 part series, which we are just now getting back to today. And in that first sermon, we saw God doing three things. God was cautioning his people, the Judeans, against being like their sinful and rebellious fathers who ignored God and his prophets and as a result were banished from his presence in the Babylonian invasion in 586 BC. So God was cautioning his people and God was calling his people to return to him after they had turned away from him. And God gave the promise that he is coming for his people. He said, return to me and I will return to you. And what we talked about last time was that these words, I will return to you, which we see in verse six of Zechariah chapter one, I will return to you, are really an encapsulation of Zechariah's whole prophecy. Because all of Zechariah just illustrates and applies that promise. Through oracles, and through poems, and through, perhaps the most, most interesting, night visions or dreams. And we're gonna be spending the next eight sermons in Zechariah looking at the eight night visions Zechariah received in which he was shown symbolic images of what God's coming, this reuniting of heaven and earth, means for the people of God. And let me just say that if you're an imaginative person or you're an artistic person or you're a fan of the fantasy genre, then I think you'll thoroughly enjoy Zachariah's night visions because they involve interesting and sometimes mysterious characters and curious and sometimes precarious situations and even things like a flying scroll and a woman being carried in a basket by angels and all sorts of fascinating and sometimes totally bizarre yet moving, moving images and words. In fact, I'll tell you that I am not a big crier, but Zachariah's night visions have moved me to tears more than once, and I have frequently found myself returning to them over the last few years because the truths contained within them are some of the most powerful and hope-giving truths that I have ever come to know. In Zachariah's first night vision, which we're gonna be looking at this morning, it reminds me of when I was a kid, uh, maybe in first grade, and I had night terrors. Maybe some of you or your kids have experienced those. Not fun. And I remember coming out of them completely disoriented and so afraid. And I also remember clinging to my dad because his presence and his embrace of me was the only thing that could console me. And I even remember one time coming out of a night terror and just repeatedly saying to my dad over and over, I love you, dad, I love you, dad, I love you. Because he broke the spell and comforted me and made me feel assured that I would be okay because he was there. You're okay, bud. I'm here and I love you too. And that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning through Zachariah's first night vision, the power of the presence of our heavenly father even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So let me pray for us before we look at our passage this morning. 
Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, the evil one would have us to think that your word is not wonderful, not living and active and powerful, not able to change us more and more into the likeness of your son. So Lord, I ask that you would bind the enemy and also that you would bind the voice of our own sinful flesh, which is by nature hostile to your word. Lord, I ask that you would illuminate your word for us this morning, that you'd give us eyes to see what you would have us to see. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to Zechariah chapter one. If you turn to the New Testament book of Matthew and then turn back a couple books, you'll find Zechariah. We're gonna read in chapter one, verses seven through 17. Zechariah chapter one, verses seven through 17. Let me read it. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I, I, Zachariah, said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long? How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Okay, so the night vision begins in verse eight with a man riding on a red horse. And who is he? Verses 11 and 12 call him the angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord. There are many angels of the Lord. Rather, this is the angel of the Lord, the angel of angels. And interestingly, Verse 13 calls him the Lord himself, Yahweh. So this man on the red horse is the angel of the Lord who is the Lord himself. Now, you may recall having seen this divine figure before in the Old Testament. He appeared to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, telling her that he would multiply her offspring through her son Ishmael. 
and Hagar rightly recognized him as God. And he appeared to Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. And the two of them wrestled through the night until daybreak. And Jacob rightly recognized him as God. And he appeared to Joshua right before the battle of Jericho as the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua fell on his face before him and worshiped him as God. And because scripture says that no one has ever seen God the Father, theologians refer to the appearances of this divine figure as a Christophany. A Christophany, which is basically a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. An appearance of the second member of the Trinity before he took on human flesh in the incarnation, which is crazy, but true. So, it appears that this man riding on the red horse, the angel of the Lord, is Christ. Now, where is he? Verse eight says that he's standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Among the myrtle trees in the glen. And myrtle trees are these beautiful shrub-like bushes that have fragrant dark green leaves and little white flowers and little dark colored berries and can be eaten. And they appear in the prophet Isaiah's descriptions of the new creation paradise to come. For example, in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 13, he says, on that day, new creation to come, on that day, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And we learn in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 15, that myrtles were used to make booths, which were little tents God's people would camp in during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a a yearly week-long festival where they would remember God's provision for them and God's presence among them. So, myrtle trees in the Old Testament represent paradise, restoration, life, God's provision, God's presence, and even God's promise. But, Here in Zechariah's night vision, these myrtle trees are in a glen or a valley. It's an interesting Hebrew word, metsula, which literally means a basin or a hollow. And it's actually the place that Jonah referred to when he was cast overboard. He said, I was cast into the metsula, the hollow, the abyss, the place he felt his life slipping away. In Job chapter 41, it's the realm of the Leviathan and other sea monsters. And it's synonymous with the word used in Genesis chapter one, where it talks about the spirit hovering over the face of the deep, the primordial chaos that he brings form and order to. So Zechariah's image of this deathly hollow, it's kind of like a terrestrial black hole. It's not a place you wanna be. And yet, it is here that Christ is stationed upon his steed and the myrtles have grown. And standing behind Christ are more riders, verse eight, on red, sorrel, or chestnut, and white colored horses. And some commentators think that these colors represent certain things though they can't seem to agree on what exactly. Uh, But actually, most of the commentators I read don't think these colors represent anything specific at all. And fortunately, it's such a minor detail that the 
Central message is the same either way. Um, but anyway, Zachariah sees this, all these multicolored horses, and he asks an angel who's standing there with him the natural question, verse nine, what are these? What am I looking at? And this angel is an angel we'll see in all of Zachariah's night visions who's basically an interpreting angel. He's always there to help Zachariah understand what he's seeing, kind of like the ghosts in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, you know, the ghost of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas yet to come who accompany Ebenezer Scrooge through various visions, helping him understand what he's seeing. This angel's kind of like that. So Zechariah asks the interpreting angel, what are these? But the response comes from Christ himself who says, verse 10, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And then these patrolling angels report back to Christ saying, verse 11, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest, or at ease. And then what happens next is interesting. Christ cries out, verse 12, O Lord of hosts, Father God, how long? How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? See, the people of Judah spent nearly 70 years in exile in Babylon because of their sin. And now they've returned to the land, but they're only a shadow of their former selves. Their temple lies in ruins, as we saw in the book of Haggai. And they're spiritually depressed, and they're under the dominance and rule of a godless world power, Persia. Meanwhile, the rest of the earth is at ease. The rest of the earth is experiencing the peace that you think God's people ought to be experiencing. And Christ intercedes for them, asking, Father, how long? But then verse, th verse 13 tells us that Christ himself speaks gracious and comforting words to the interpreting angel, which tells us that either Christ has received an answer from God the Father, which he is now sharing, or that Christ has known the answer to his own question all along, which he is now sharing. And then in verses 14 through 17, the interpreting angel delivers those gracious and comforting words to Zechariah, saying, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, and the measure, uh, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So these gracious and comforting words tell us three main things. Number one, God is exceedingly jealous for his people. Like a faithful husband, he will not abandon his bride whom he loves. He will restore her to himself. And in Zechariah chapter eight, verses 14 and 15, God says this. He says, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. And in chapter 9, verses 12 and 16, God promises to restore his people to double 
such that they will shine like the jewels of a crown. And in chapter 10, verse six, God says that they shall be as though I had not rejected them. God is exceedingly jealous for his people. And number two, God is exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. And in the first half of Zechariah chapter nine, we see God pronouncing judgments upon these nations who are at ease, and he's angry with them, it says, because they afflicted his people. And in chapter 12, verse nine, God says, on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And in chapter 14, verse 12, listen to this. God says, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. They will be stopped in every way. God is exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. And number three, God has already returned to his people with mercy. And in verses 16 and 17 of this chapter, we see that his return includes the future hope that God's house, the temple, will be built among his people. Verse 16a, and God will stretch out a measuring line over his holy city, his people, and Jeremiah chapter 31 tells us that this measuring line suggests an expanded restoration, meaning the people of God are gonna grow in number. And God's people will once again overflow with prosperity, verse 17a, and God will again comfort his people and choose his holy city, verse 17b. God has already returned to his people with mercy. And that's Zachariah's first night vision. So, what does it all mean? And what does it all mean for us today? Well, first, when we consider the historical context, it seems that Christ here is standing in this deathly deep because that's where the Judeans are right now. That's where the Judeans are right now, right? They're in a deep valley, hemmed in by mountains of sin, and they feel like they're sinking, and their hope is slipping away, and their enemies are looming like storm clouds above their heads. It's a nightmare for them, but their God is with them there in the nightmare. Their God is with them there. And the myrtle trees here in the deathly deep communicate two things. Number one, paradise is very near. Paradise is very near. See, it's as if God is saying, Judeans, look, look, the myrtles have already begun to spring up from the hollow. Paradise restoration has already begun. I am the God who brought the paradise of Eden and a river that watered that garden out of the chaotic primordial deep. You can trust me. 
And I am the God who brought my people to the desert oasis at Elam, where the place of fresh water springs and palm trees out of Egypt through the crossing of the Red Sea. I am the God who brought my people into the promised land flowing with milk and honey out of the wilderness through the crossing of the Jordan River. Oh, Judeans, don't you see that paradise is just on the other side? Out of this deathly deep, I am fashioning a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. And all who thirst shall come to its waters and drink and be satisfied and never thirst again. And not just that, but springs of living water shall begin to pour out of them, welling up to eternal life. I'm getting ahead of the passage a bit, but don't you see where all this is leading us? It's leading us to the one who would come out of this present deathly deep from the line of Judah to ultimately stand in the hollow on behalf of his people where he bore in his body upon a cross the deathly consequences of his people's sin. And though the abyss of death itself swallowed him down, it was not able to hold him because he is the possessor of the power of a life that is stronger than death itself. And after three days in the ground, he rose, he was raised, resurrected to new life and restoration like a myrtle tree springing up from the hollow so that all who would turn away from their sin and turn to God would be saved, forgiven, cleansed of their sin, and be given new life where there was previously only death. And one day, experience that same resurrecting life and restoration eternally. You know what's cool? Zechariah gives us tons of clues as to who this person is. Tons of clues. In, Ze- in, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it's prophesied that one day he'd ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in chapter 11, verse 12, it's prophesied that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And in chapter 12, verse 10, it's prophesied that he'd be pierced. And in chapter 13, verse one, it's prophesied that as a result of his piercing, a fountain would be opened for the people of God to cleanse them of their sin. And so through and through and through and through, Zechariah leaves no doubt in our minds as to who this is. He's the man among the myrtles, the rider on the red horse. And though the color of his horse may not represent anything specific here in Zechariah's night vision, I cannot help but think of the one who's standing in the hollow on behalf of his people led to the shedding of his own red blood for his people, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And throughout the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, there were hints not only of his person, but also of the paradise restoration he would live and die to bring. See, Eden and Elam and Canaan, which were all preceded by a deathly deep, are types and shadows of a greater Eden and a greater Elam and a greater promised land that is to come out of this present deathly deep. On that great day when Jesus Christ is gonna return to make all things new, he says, all things new. In fact, we sing this song at Christmas time, Joy to the World, 
And the interesting thing is that we've made that song a song about Jesus' incarnation at his birth, but it's actually a song about his second coming to earth. That day when heaven and nature will sing together in a beautiful harmony because God's domain and mankind's domain will be one again. They'll be the same space again. They'll completely overlap again just like it was in the Garden of Eden. That day when no more will sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground because he will make his blessings flow far as the curse is found just as it must have felt like at Elam where in the midst of this desert wilderness there was this luxuriant oasis of palm trees and fresh water springs which provided shade and refreshment to the wandering Israelites. That day when he will rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love, just as it was in the land of Canaan when God ruled theocratically over his people. And so in application, I'd ask you, I'd ask you, where are you right now, metaphorically speaking? Where are you right now? Do you feel like you're sinking in a deathly deep? Are you in a bad place? A place you know you're not supposed to be in? Or are you in a hard place? A place that's proving very difficult for you to be in? Or are you in a confusing place, a place you just never thought you'd be in by now? In any case, do you trust that paradise is very near? Because if you don't, you can be sure that you'll stay stuck in the bad place, believing there's no possible way out. And you can be sure that you'll feel hopeless in the hard place, believing that there's no light at the end of this tunnel. And you can be sure that you'll be faithless in the confusing place, believing there's no point or purpose or providential hand behind all this. But when we trust that paradise is very near, we'll have the strength to wage war against our flesh, knowing that the bad place is escapable by God's grace. And we'll have the courage to press forward in the darkness, knowing that in due time, Every shadow in the dark place will be scattered by the light. And we'll have the faith to trust in the sovereignty of God, knowing that the confusing place for us is no confusion or concern or coincidence to God. Not a random meaningless occurrence, but something providentially planned and purposed by one who is working all things together for our good and for his glory. Wherever we are, we must hold on to the hope that paradise is very near. And our motivation for believing this hope is that God has proven it to be true over and over and over and over, even in the most grim circumstance of human history, when our Savior was betrayed and beaten and brutally murdered. Even then, a great paradise restoration was just on the other side, and that was salvation for the people of God. 
Salvation for the people of God. We can't always see the paradise that is waiting just on the other side, but God does, and Jesus did. As he said to the penitent thief who was being crucified next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Maybe God will say the same thing to you today in whatever deathly deep you're experiencing. So take heart and trust him. Maybe paradise is nearer than you think. And the second thing the myrtles here in the deathly deep tell us is that there is abundant life in the presence of God even now. There is abundant life in the presence of God even now. Here in this night vision, it's as if God is saying, yes, you're in the valley, Judeans, but don't you see green pastures all around? There is food here yet. There is life here yet, for I am here with you. Oh, Judeans, do you speak to your souls the words of David in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And Lord, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Or Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Or Psalm 73, I am continually with you, Lord. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing else on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. O oh, Judeans, do you not see that my presence is the paradise your souls are longing for? Every human soul is longing for paradise, right? We're longing for peace in our fear and comfort in our pain and rest in our unrest. And we're longing for stability through the flood and security through the flame. And we're longing for acceptance despite our inadequacies and love despite our unloveliness. And some people think they've found it, paradise, under an umbrella on the beach. And some people think they've found it in the number that's reflected on their bank statement. And some people think they've found it in the embrace of a loved one 
But the truth is, no matter how many beaches we frequent, or how much money we accrue, or even how deeply we love the ones closest to us, apart from the presence of God, we have not found paradise and never will. You won't find that on a bumper sticker. (laughs) Apart from the presence of God, we have not found paradise and never will. And the reason is because humanity's greatest problem is not fear or pain or unrest or instability or insecurity or even our own inadequacy or unloveliness. It's not cancer or disease or paralysis or anxiety or depression or stress or loneliness, or confusion, or addiction, or foolishness, or violence, or corruption, or poverty, or theft, or adultery, or even death itself. Our greatest problem and the greatest curse of the fall is the exile, the banishment of all humanity from the presence of God. Our greatest problem and the greatest curse of the fall is the exile of all humanity from the presence of God. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, the worst thing that happened was that mankind's domain and God's domain became separated. And Adam and Eve were forced to leave God's holy presence in the garden as exiles. And now, today, everyone born into this world of flesh and blood, we all come into this world spiritually dead and estranged from the presence of God, which is the place humanity was created to be in. Meanwhile, we're longing for paradise. And the problem is, we live in a culture who believes that the answer is not something so archaic as repentance and returning to God, but rather economic stability and renewable energy and better education, and universal health care, and social justice. These things will lead us to utopia, heaven on earth, they say. These things will put all the earth at rest, at ease, they say. But the truth is that even if our world succeeded in bringing about this cultural conception of utopia, I think it would be like a gardener mowing over the weeds in his yard and no longer seeing any weeds and then concluding that the weeds are all gone. And very soon he would learn, because the weeds would return, they weren't gone. They were never really gone. They were never uprooted. And likewise, it's hypothetically possible that we could go 100% green, zero carbon emissions, 100% wind and solar powered, free education, free college, free healthcare, everybody's rich, and we would still be found wanting, lacking, missing something. Because only he who has been reunited to his maker and now lives in the life-giving presence of God and now knows that his life actually matters and is not just a cosmic accident that came about by millions of years of random evolutionary mutations and natural selection, only he can say as David did, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I lack nothing. I am in need of nothing else because he is here and he is mine.
Those are the words of a man for whom the curse has turned to blessing and for whom the banishment has turned to belonging. Those are the words of a man who feeds on green pastures and who drinks from still waters and whose soul is restored. Those are the words of a man who will not fear in the deathly deep, the valley of the shadow of death, or even when the earth gives way because he knows that God is there still. So an application I'd ask you, do you long for paradise, true paradise, or a cheap substitute? Are you always planning the next vacation, but hardly ever time with the one who created every island and ocean? Are you always chasing after wealth, but hardly ever after the one from whom all blessings flow? Are you always thinking about the ones you love, but hardly ever about the one who loves you most? If so, we've substituted, we've exchanged, Romans 1 says, we've exchanged the creator for the creation, the benefactor for the blessings. We've exchanged the man among the myrtles for the myrtles themselves. And look, we can enjoy the creation and the blessings and the myrtles as a gift of God's common grace to all, but all of these things, all of these blessings are all signposts pointing away from themselves and singing together in chorus, look, look to the one who made me. He is wonderful, he is glorious, he is to be worshiped, he is to be praised. He himself is the paradise our souls are really longing for. And he himself, his grace, his presence, it's, he is the cause of every myrtle that springs up from this deathly hollow, not only in this broken and fallen world, but also in us. And we often miss it, and we often substitute him for something else because our desperately wicked hearts, deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says, our desperately wicked hearts are so prone to chase after God's gifts instead of God himself as the greatest gift. And so, we must trust that though there is a sense in which paradise is yet to come, in another sense, paradise is here and paradise is now because God is present now among his people by the Holy Spirit and has united his life to ours now through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of all the good news of the gospel, of all the good news, this is the greatest news, that estranged exiles can be returned to the presence of God and can be united to his life now. This is the greatest news of the gospel. And so as we joyfully await that great day when no more will sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more night terrors, we take greater joy in the fact, the simple fact, 
that what will make heaven paradise is simply more of God forever. More of God than we experience now forever. That is paradise. He is everything. He is what it is all about. And so my prayer for us is that we would not miss the forest of his provision and his presence and his promises for the trees of our fears or our hurts in our valleys. Our God is a father who is always there to embrace us and to speak tenderly to us and to reassure us that in his hands, things are gonna be okay. And so, Christian, no matter what deathly deep you find yourself in today, you need to know that he, the man among the myrtles, the rider on the red horse, Jesus Christ, is with you. And by his grace, he is bringing you into a paradise that is waiting just on the other side. Let's pray. Lord God, as your people, we have to admit that though we believe that you are everywhere present and are with us always, it doesn't always feel like it. Lord, sometimes it feels like fear or pain or heartbreak are omnipresent forces in our lives and omnipotent, unconquerable foes. And Lord, we know that you do not take suffering lightly. You do not take the brokenness of a world ravaged by the effects of sin lightly. Jesus, you wept over it. You wept over it. And we know that you're coming back to put an end to it forever. But Lord, I ask that this morning you might give a special renewal and life to every soul that is suffering to every person who is walking through the valley of the shadow of death right now. And Lord, may that renewal in life be your felt presence. Lord, may it be an embrace of us that touches us in the depths of our being, that touches us in a way that no fear or pain or heartbreak can. For your glory alone, amen.